Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show featuring the most exciting artists, leaders, scientists, and scholars around. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's deputy director and one of the curators of our live events program. A few weeks back, broadcaster Bel Donati met the legendary novelist Isabella Allende for a live stream event exploring her lifelong feminist activism. Before we go to the interview, I'd love to recommend another show which I know you're going to enjoy. It's 40 Minute Mentor, a podcast where thinkers and leaders distill their best careers and business advice for host James Mitra in, you've guessed it, just 40 minutes. It's available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever good podcasts are found. Now, without further ado, here are Belle Donati and Isabella Allende. Good evening, and thank you very much for joining us. My name is Belle Donati. I'm a news anchor and a culture presenter. One of the upsides of having these conversations online is that so many of you can join us from all around the world, and that's particularly important for tonight's guest, a truly international writer whose books, uh, originally written in Spanish, have been translated into more than 40 languages. She sold uh, 75 million copies of her books worldwide, and she was awarded America's highest civilian honour, the Presidential Medal of Freedom by then-President Obama in 2014. Her latest work, The Soul of a Woman, written as the world went into lockdown, is a sort of memoir that explores her long-held beliefs on feminism. Isabel Allende, welcome. Thank you very much for talking to us tonight. Thank you, Belle, for having me. Now, I called, I introduced your book as a a memoir, but it's not a conventional sort of memoir, and it's not like the memoirs that you've written uh, in the past yourself. As a reader, I felt that I was coming into a conversation about feminism, your experience of being a woman in in the time and the places that you've uh, inhabited. As the writer, how do you define it? I don't have a definition. They have said everything about this book. But I think that what you said is exactly what the intention was. Why did I write the book? I wanted to, to give my readers the opportunity to start a conversation with their friends or in a book club, with their spouses or companions, with men basically, Um, a conversation about what it is to be a woman. What is the soul of a woman? What do we want? Mm -hmm. Did you have an audience in mind when you were writing? I was thinking of myself, of my own trajectory, 
as a woman and as a feminist. I was born 78 years ago, so it's a very long trajectory. But I was thinking also of the women, the young women I saw in the streets for the Me Too movement, for Black Lives Matter, for protests in Chile. The young people, not only women, because often the young men are with them. It's, it reads like a book with a purpose. For you, what do you hope that it might achieve? Only that, just start the conversation. That sometimes the conversation gets, which is always there, I mean, women's struggle is always there, but sometimes it gets pushed to the back because there are other things that are more uh, immediate, more apparently more urgent. But to me, there is nothing more urgent than this struggle for women's rights because it affects half of humanity. It is for me the most important revolution of all times. How does a revolution start? It always starts with rage at something that is basically very unfair, at exploitation and violence. And when any revolution starts, there's no roadmap. You don't know where you're going. You just invent things as they come and, and try to overcome the obstacles as they appear. There are crossroads and sometimes backlash and everything stalls and one makes mistakes and then you another generation comes and, and does something different. But all that is, has happened in my lifetime to the women's movement, but it is still relevant, incredibly relevant. That we're quite right, because you speak about yourself riding this wave, this second wave of feminism. And I do want to come back to what you've talked about there, about the rage. But I think before that, given that we are in International Women's Day week, we're a few days after International Women's Day, yeah. uh, it feels so fitting that we're speaking uh, tonight about this book, about feminism. For you, when you approached International Women's Day this year, what did it mean to you? What it always means, I wish there was no Women's Day or Women's Month, because there is no man's day. There's no need for that, because it's taken for granted that men have advantages and they don't need to be celebrated in a special day. So I have the fa same feeling with Mother's Day, that once a year we remember that we have a mother and we give her a bouquet of flowers. Well, I wish we could celebrate our mothers all the time and women all the time and men all the time. There will be a time in my granddaughter's lives where there will be no month to celebrate women. There will be no need. You write in the book, in my youth, I fought for equality. I wanted to participate in the men's game. But in my mature years, I've come to realize that the game is a folly. It's destroying the planet and the moral fiber of humanity. Feminism is not about replicating the disaster. It's about mending it. I loved that passage. I'd love to dive into it a little bit more. It, it seems almost to me that you're saying that you're no longer fighting for equality because there's something inherently, uh, I guess, incorrect or defunct about trying to play that man's game. So, so what is it that you're looking for now? I think that the final goal of feminism is to replace the patriarchy. What is the patriarchy? It's a system of oppression that gives dominance and supremacy to the male gender over women, nature, other species, and many men. Because not every man participates in, in the upper echelons of this patriarchy. And how does this patriarchy, like any other system of oppression, work with violence and with punishment and by excluding 
and separating. So the way that they can control everybody is by separating us in class, gender, nationality, religion, you name it, race, whatever. This feels like a really a sort of radical shift in our in our social structures. And you talk in the book about the fact that religion is part of the patriarchy to an extent, class, all the all the uh, the, the indicators that you've mentioned. If we're talking about this this radical system change. Should women in that case be trying to operate outside of the system, the patriarchal system, in order to try to to achieve that? Or is it to an extent necessary for them to get to positions of power within the existing system in order for them to change it from within? That's what we have been doing for a while, for decades now. And when we have a critical number of women in power, that won't be necessary anymore. Um, Somebody said, not me, I'm just quoting that, the nature of power will change when women participate instead of the nature of women have to change to participate in power. And so the, the goal of feminism really is an uprising against the patriarchy and it's to replace the patriarchy by a system, by a management of the world in which men and women in equal numbers have equal power to make decisions in which feminine and masculine values have the same weight in the society. It's not about changing the patriarchy for a matriarchy, because probably we will have other kinds of problems with that. So it is us, as a human family, share the management of this finite world in which we live. You, you open the book with this wonderful image of yourself as a feminist right from the age of kindergarten, right from when you were in kindergarten, uh, before you even knew what the word uh, meant. How did your feminism manifest itself in those very early years? It wasn't feminism, really. I, 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 it's a literary license to say that I was a feminist because the word had not arrived in Chile, or at least in my family. I, I had never heard it, and I think my mother hadn't either. We had heard about suffragettes, of course, and, and there was a struggle to, for the vote. And in Chile, there were many important women that pushed um, the boundaries of healthcare and education. But a feminist movement didn't appear in Chile until the 60s. And uh, by then, I was in my 20s. So uh, how did it manifest when I was little? I was angry, sullen furious at at what I saw as a very unfair world. But I was not only furious at the male gender dominance, which was obvious in my family and in the society in which I lived. Every form of injustice made me very angry. For example, the class division in Chile, which is like castes in India. In Chile, we say we are not racist. Yes, we are, but it's called something else. It's called class system. And we exclude the, the indigenous people. If you have dark skin and you look Indian, you don't have the same chances as one who looks European. So don't tell me that there is no racism in Chile. Of course there is. And as a very, very young child, I noticed it. I, I knew and it made me furious. You know, two things that to this day I can't tolerate is that kind of injustice and cruelty against animals. These two things that just make me furious. This anger, we, we, you touched on it now a couple of times, this, this, you called it rage at first, you called it anger. 
Do you think there is an inherent necessity for feminism to express itself uh, in anger? Or do you think now that we're on the fourth, or some people say the fifth wave of feminism, that we ought to be looking at a language that reconciles? Where, what, what are your views on, on the way that feminism and anger interact? The way depends on where you are and what are your circumstances. We are talking here in the West. You are talking in England and I'm in California. So our reality is totally different from the reality I see through my foundation in Africa, in Asia, in Central America, at the border of the United States, in the refugee camps. It's a completely different reality. And I think that the language of inclusion, the language of inviting young males, forget the old ones, young males to be part of the movement is totally appropriate for this wave of feminism today in certain countries, but not everywhere. And I think I said it before, and I'm sorry if I repeat, but every revolution starts with anger and with anger at something that you cannot tolerate. And so the anger is a fuel for any movement, progressive movement. And this is a very progressive movement. This is a revolutionary movement. So we need the anger, but the anger cannot be indiscriminate. You, you have to target it and you have to transform the anger into action. I was so frustrated with my own life for years because I just had the anger and I didn't have any way of using the anger for something, for change. I couldn't because I didn't know how to until I, in my 20s, I started working in a feminist magazine and I started reading feminist writers from, from Europe and the United States. And I realized that I wasn't a lunatic. There was a movement out there and there were people expressing ideas in an intelligent, articulate way that I didn't have. And sometimes with humor. And humor is a wonderful tool, let me tell you. So I found a way of channeling the anger. And that changed everything. Is that the same era that you were working for the magazine Paula and that you yeah. you wrote your very famous uh, column, Civilize Your Troglodyte, Civilize Your Caveman? Yes, that was the time. Mm -hmm. And so this, I'm interested in that idea of harnessing humor. Now that you've been through that process, how, how do you talk to men now about feminism? Men who perhaps haven't thought a lot about it, but men who could potentially be allies. Well, it's easy to talk to young men because they have been raised by women like me and, or, or my daughter. I would be the grandmother of those men. Uh, so they, it's nothing new for them in this part of the world. Like I have to stress that, that, that we live in a very privileged part in this regard. And we can talk to them and they will probably listen. And then the, the media and, and there, there are changes in the culture. For example, 25 years ago, nobody spoke about sexual harassment. What was that? No one had heard the word until Anita Hill was brave enough to confront Congress and the Senate to accuse Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. And he was the candidate for the Supreme Court. She lost that battle and she was humiliated even by Biden, who is the president today. But she won the war because the idea of sexual harassment spread all over the world. I wonder what advice you'd have uh, to women, to feminists who talk to men. You say that, that men now are, are almost all on, on women's side, and to a large extent, I hope that's true. And yet there are men who feel 
threatened or undermined by feminist discourse, even young men who might have been raised by, by strong independent women, because they feel that it that when someone is attacking the patriarchy, when someone is attacking uh, the system, it's a direct attack at them as a man. Because it is. It is an uprising against the idea that because he's male, he has power over women. So it is a threat. And every time that, that someone threatens to take away part of your power, you feel, of course, angry and, and you react against that. And there has been a lot of moments in which the backlash against feminism has been terrible. And what happens now is that if there is a crisis of any kind, women's rights are the first thing to disappear. If there is occupation, a war, a catastrophe of any kind, now a pandemic, the first victims are always women and children. So uh, we have to be alert all the time, vigilant. Now, young men and men, older men, much more than young men, feel threatened by women, but they, are, they also feel threatened by other men constantly uh, because the, we live in a world of competition in a, and greed in which I win if you lose. There is no win-win situation. And to, to instill that idea that in another system, we will evolve to another stage of humanity in which we all win. That's the message that I think is important. Mm -hmm. And of course, people who are holding power today, which are mostly older men, won't listen. Why would they? They don't want to lose anything. But as we get more and more people included in this, this desire to replace the patriarchy, they will disappear. So perhaps what I feel like I'm hearing is that there's the what what women who are who are trying to talk to men who perhaps are resistant to some feminist ideas is perhaps to try to see that they would have a place within the new utopia. They would have a place just because it's not absolutely. A they they a do have a place. They have to be included. They have to be our allies. And the way to talk about this, and this was the purpose of the book. I, I think unconsciously this is what I wanted. I, I intended women, young women especially, to talk to their partners. And the idea of inclusion, instead of confronting, ask questions. I have a friend who is an extraordinary anthropologist, Arlie Hoshild, and she spends years in the deep south of the United States, in rural communities, the people who vote for Trump, who don't want to be vaccinated, the evangelicals, the people who seem so far away from where I stand now and where Arlie stands. But she goes there, spends time. There is a conversation going. She, she trusts that these people are people and they have their beliefs for a reason. So she asks questions and she establishes the bridges that we need to change things. If, if they are excluded and silenced, nothing changes. And, and I think that, that that approach, the earliest approach of asking the questions works. It usually works. I think we could all learn from that, Isabel. I think that's extremely, <laughs> yeah. extremely It's hard for me, you know, it's really hard for me because my tendency is to just go like a bulldozer and just push them aside. But that doesn't work. And also, we need them. We need young men. We need we need. LGBT, we need gays, we need everybody with us. Welcome, everybody. 
You write later in the book, men impose themselves by force. They bear the responsibility for this culture of greed and of violence in which we live. When you're talking about this culture of greed and violence, what do you mean there? Is that, is that capitalism? Is that, what is that? Oh, no, not only capitalism, because we have seen communism and socialism and, and dictatorships and, and fascism. We've seen everything. And it, the patriarchy never changes. The power is always in the same hands and it's always exerted in the same way. I remember in the late 60s in Chile and all over Latin America, we had the dream of socialism, the dream that of changing the society, of having socialism. And then you would have the socialist parties you know, and other movements that were really ultra left. The women did all the work. And then when the time came to share power, only the men got it and the women were serving coffee. So let me tell you, nothing changed with socialism. It was exactly the same. So then when this, we're talking of the culture of, of greed, this culture of violence, is it so underpinning that, you know, is it, is it so everywhere that we can't, we can't quite understand what it is? We can't quite put into words what it is? And how would it look like in a world that was not like this, a world that wasn't patriarchal? I can imagine it. I can imagine a world that is not patriarchal because... The patriarchy is so prevalent in every detail of our lives that we're not aware of it. It's like the air we breathe. We don't see it. And the same is this ongoing war against women. We suffer it and we don't name it. We don't call it what it is, a war against women. That includes all forms of violence and exploitation and disrespect of women from early on until femicide, everything. We don't call it that way. So when I imagine a world in which that doesn't happen, in which men and women share power, imagining or trying to create a sustainable society in which we do not destroy the planet, in which we do not abuse our species, other species and nature, a world in which we are all included, we all have the same opportunities, There's no poverty, inherited poverty, as we have today. A world in which there's no need to be miserable. What what is the root of humanity's poverty and happiness, inequality? It's war. It's violence. It's the fact that we live in conflict. And that is not necessary. That is not necessary. We don't have to be divided in tribes. I think that the pandemic has given us an extraordinary opportunity to live a global experience in which something happened to someone in China and it happened to all of us. And the only way we're going to defeat this virus is if we all do it together. If half of of humanity doesn't do it, it won't go away. So we have to work together to keep on living together in this planet And this experience of being just one global family is so so extraordinary that we will, I'm sure, we will see the side effects of this in the near future. Not immediately, because the pandemic is not going to stop in one day. But in the near future, we will see that this year of going inward, of reflection, of, of threat, of being in fear and being together will has taught us a lesson. And it will be a very important lesson for the future. 
It's interesting there that you speak optimistically about the future, the post-COVID future, the fact that we may learn some lessons, because within the context of the last year, within the pandemic itself, we've seen women's rights roll back decades where they have taken on much more than their fair share of uh, the homeschooling. They're the ones whose jobs were disproportionately lost. I wonder how you reconcile the two, because at the, at the moment, it's hard to see how, even though we've all seen that this has happened, how that change is going to come about. Well, that is what I said before, that where there is a crisis of any kind, women are the first victims. And uh, that is because we live in a patriarchy. So I think that th- what we are experiencing now, it's so obvious, it's in the face of everybody, what's happening to women, that that needs to change. And it will change. And maybe it will push history in, in a certain way. You know, my brother, who is a pessimist, He thinks that we will become more tribal, we will start cannibalizing each other, and that the world is going to explode in in misery. I don't think so, because I write historical novels, and I study history. And let me tell you, the curve of humanity is toward evolution. We are not going back to the Stone Age. So for as long as we are in this planet, unless something absolutely horrible happens, we will progress. We are not going back. Let's take the the extreme. We spoke about gender violence um, a minute ago. Uh, And in the book, you write a lot about uh, violence against women, male violence against women. There's an example that you give that in university campuses and in the military where women have been uh, introduced, there are programs that teach women to avoid risky situation and then assume that if she is attacked, it's her fault. How do we change that? How do we put the onus on men to stop this violence? By creating global awareness of this war against women, call it what it is. It's a war against women. And when we name things with a real name, we can start tackling it. But if we ignore it, if we use metaphors, if we prefer not to talk about it, it's not going to change. And just because we have been talking more and more about it, things are happening to curtail those abuses. Today, not only women are taught not to take risks, but also there's more awareness of punishing the males than before there was none. In the workplace, and, and I know that this, you know, this has been in the Western world, certainly the discourse uh, for years now, trying to get equality, more equality in the workplace. I was interested by one of your own personal anecdotes. You said you had a, a warning from your late uh, literary agent who said, you're going to be judged more harshly because success in women is not easily uh, forgiven. Did you find that to be true during your career? Absolutely, absolutely. Plus, my agent said, you will have to do double or or three times the effort of any man to get half the recognition. But don't worry, you can do it. And it's true, with with a huge effort and working more than anybody, I did get some recognition, but it has taken 40 years. And uh, critics, you know, when I uh, published The House of the Spirits, it was during the time of the boom of Latin American literature that took the world by assault, really, because everybody was reading Latin American literature. There were 25, 30 extraordinary writers, all of them male. There was not one female voice in in that choir of of the boom. And then I wrote The House of the Spirits, which, lucky for me, became an immediate success. It was not part of the boom. It was not included in the boom. I'm not in the club because I'm a woman. And uh, 
I totally have lived what Carmen, my agent, said, that you have to do double the effort to get half of what a man gets for that effort. And that happens everywhere. For every dollar a man makes, a woman makes 65 cents for the same work or more work. And then yet in the Anglo in the Anglophone uh, world, your books later were often compared to the work of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I have heard interviews with you where that bothered you, that that comparison. How come that bothered you? It never bothered me. Ah. No, no, no. In, 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 what bothers me is that any time a woman does something, a male gets the credit. That bothers me. But to be compared to the greatest Latin American novelist of the century, ha, it's an honor. I love the idea of, that, of being compared to him or to Pablo Neruda or to any of them. But the fact that a woman needs to have, be compared bugs me. Because nobody says that any of the writers of the boom has to be compared to any other one, let alone Garcia Marquez. So it's, it's again, a gender abuse in a way. So as a, as you know, a, what, what has happened in this time is that after the publication of The House of the Spirits and the success it had, many publishers finally realized that more women than men buy novels and that more women than men read novels. So there's a market, a huge market out there because they love to read other women's writing. So now women have many more opportunities to publish, but the publishers are looking for women writers. And that is wonderful. However, still the critics disrespect women. Uh, the professors don't teach them at university. The industry still discriminates against them. And you will see, if you study it, how a, a man gets for the same genre and the same kind of book more of an advance than a woman, even if she sells more than him. So again, you see, it, we are punished just for being women. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I want to talk about femininity because you've, um, you're very clear in your mind that femininity is absolutely compatible with women's emancipation. I'd love to know how you came to that understanding and what your understanding now is between feminism and femininity. They are not opposites at all. I mean, on the, I would say that to be a full woman, you have to have all your rights. You have to be respected. You have to feel safe. And that's what feminism is all about. So in order to make you more of a woman, to be able to experience being feminine to the fullest, you have to feel safe. 
And that is what feminism is trying to do. So to me, it's not the opposite at all. And I love being a woman. I love makeup and clothes and flowers and romance. And I'm pretty sentimental. And that has nothing to do with having, with, with my rage or my enthusiasm to carry a knife between my teeth to fight against everything that I feel needs to be fought against. Do you think these these uh, things that you've just described, the, the the sentimentality, the beauty around you, understanding, you know, makeup, wanting to look good, is that socially constructed, do you think, or, or is it inherent that women will be more attracted to beauty and that men have less concern with their own personal beauty? I don't know, but I like it. I don't want to be a man. <laughs> I don't want to be ungroomed and graphy, no. It's strange because in nature, for example, in birds, you see that the male is the one who has the plumage and who has the color and the beautiful singing. And the females are pretty plain. They're just there hoping to be seduced by the colors of the male. In uh, humans, it has become different, but I don't know if it's biological or not. But everywhere, in every society, women look for beauty. They decorate their mud huts in Africa with paintings. They, they make necklaces out of shells of whatever they have. They use paint on their bodies. They do their hair. It's just something that we love to do and something that we share with other women also. It's, it's a sort of connection with other women. When you see, for example, uh, women combing each other's hair uh, braiding it in Africa with those little braids and and it, all the grooming and all that is, is so feminine and so beautiful. Who do you think we women try to look beautiful for? Is it for men or is it for other women or for ourselves? Maybe, maybe because we just like the idea. But it is also true that beauty during our reproductive years is what attracts the male. So there is a biological reason for that also. But after that, after your biological reproductive years are over uh, and you are an older woman, what do you care? Why does it matter? To me, it matters. And I'm 78. And am I trying to put on makeup for Roger, my husband? Look, he's the only man that I have seen in a year, not even the male man I get to see. I'm just locked inside this house. Do I want to look good for him? I don't think so. Because before he came to me, I would put on makeup for the dog. It's fine. I just love the idea of it. Is there a freedom in that case? You write um, at one point, as you've just said, a woman's value is tied to her youth, to her beauty. For any woman, it's difficult to navigate those waters. For most of us, it's a shipwreck. Did you feel your own relationship with youth and, and beauty Shipwreck is a strong word. Did you feel that about yourself? Yes, I always felt inadequate. I felt I'm very short to begin with. So um, just the idea that I would go into a room with more than six people and I would disappear under the table, that wasn't very pleasant. So the idea of being self-confident and at ease in my body came much, much later. And I would say that now that I exercise a lot, that, that I keep my diet, that I feel very strong and healthy. I'm very happy to be in this body, no matter the height. 
But it wasn't like that when I was younger, because when I was in my reproductive years, that was an issue. And now it's not. It struck me reading your book how uh, complex it is to be a feminist and, and in a sense how, how many contradictions it can involve and how sometimes we have to accept that there will be hypocrisies in that whether or not we think of that um, as a problem. For example, you mentioned, you know, at once being scared of, of spinsterhood and, and being a romantic despite being a feminist, as though the two are mutually exclusive. Um, how do you think we should approach these contradictions now? Should we embrace them or should we try to hide them? Embrace them, make them obvious. <laughs> when I was young, I did decoration for a magazine and we had to photograph interior, I mean, places, houses, whatever. And I was with, with an architect and a photographer trying to uh, photograph a house that I had a pillar in the center of the living room. So no matter where you would place the camera, the pillar would be like, like a pyramid in the middle of the room. And the architect said, when you cannot hide it, show it, paint it red. And that's what we did. We painted it red. So I always think of that. And I think that about myself. I am a very flawed human being. And instead of trying to hide my flaws, I try to improve them, but also show them. If I am vain, why, why would I say that I'm not? Of course I'm vain. It's not that I'm proud of that, but it's obvious anybody can see that. Perhaps there's something in that it feels as though these it's liberating. It's liberating when you don't have any secrets. <laughs> of course, liberating, but also part of a developing ideology. This is it's feminism is still in development, and actually, these contradictions may always be part of of a, an ideology in development. I loved what you said about motherhood in the book, and about how we read so much about in first, second wave feminism about how women are chained to their bodies, ensnared by their bodies. And for you, there was a real liberation and freedom. You celebrated motherhood. You celebrated your ability to become a mother. The most joyful moments of your life were holding your newborn babies to your breast. Did your feminism change when you became a mother? No, no, not at all. I didn't feel exploited by motherhood because I had a lot of help. In that sense, I was privileged. My mother-in-law, whom I adored, lived next door. So she helped me with the kids. I had nannies at home. I had an adopted grandmother who lived, lived with us. So I could work and I could be a feminist and have a life outside because I had help. We live in a society that, that does not provide enough help for mothers. So young women are trapped into motherhood instead of enjoying it thoroughly because they don't have help. And often their male companions don't help enough. It's changing though. Because in, in your generation, your husband was feeding the baby a minute ago. My husband never fed a baby, never changed a diaper. But your, I had the help of other women. Your, your own relationship with your, with your mother, you talk a lot about that in the book. She's woven through the very fabric of the book with, with the expression, as my mother used to say, it comes after a lot of the, of the mm. phrases that you say. Um, she was obviously a lasting presence in your life. She edited a lot of your, of your work. What has it been like without her? Hard. It's been hard. I never thought I would miss her so much. She lived to be 98, totally lucid. And we wrote to each other every single day by email, sometimes more than once a day, depending on what was going on. I would just open the computer and the letter from my mother first thing. And so she would do the same. And I, at the end of the year, 
my mother would give me back uh, my letters and I would have her letters. So I would put the letters of the year in a plastic box and mark the year. I have decades of plastic boxes in the garage. And at a certain point, my son thought that uh, they would be deteriorating with time and humidity and everything. So it was good to digitalize the letters. So we hired a company to do that. And we calculated that there are 24,000 letters in the garage. I mean, that's an astounding number. <laughs> that's all of my mother's life and my life day by day in those letters. So my relationship with her was powerful, intimate. I loved her and tried to protect her, although I would, I would get also angry at her dependency and how submissive she was to my stepfather, who in, in older age became very grouchy and unpleasant, and, and really, and how she would have to put up with all that. And I, th that bothered me. But I and have to understand from where she came from. Um, so we had a wonderful relationship. And after she died, I decided I would continue writing to her every day. But that didn't last more than three or four months. It, I just couldn't do it. It, it. it seemed very artificial, like writing a journal or something. Do you think you'll ever do something with those letters? No. We, we had promised each other that when the other one would die, whoever died first, the other one would burn the letters, but I couldn't burn them. So now my son has that, that chore. When I die, he will have to make a huge bonfire in the patio and burn them. I want to take us away from the, the personal a second and back to, to some of your feminism, to some of your ideas. You write and you talk a lot about uh, feminism within the context of other injustices. And at the beginning of our conversation, you said that that was the thing that, that got you most angry was injustice. What relationship do you think feminism now has with other movements, be it Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ movements? I was an, in conversation with Alicia Garza, who is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, together with the other two women. Although the credit now has been given to a young man who jumped into the movement two years later. So that happens a lot. Well, I was talking with Alicia and we both realized immediately that we are fighting the system. And for her, race is the first focus. But within the, the problem of race, you also have problems with gender and with inclusion and who is in and who is out. And the same with feminists. They were marching with Black Lives Matter in Chile when we had a uh, huge protests against the government, everybody was in the streets. Um, and the, the, everybody who had a grievance of any kind was in the streets. And we realized that you could have a million people in the street in 24 hours if we get together, because we are all protesting against the same thing. And really, Black Lives Matter doesn't differ that much from feminism or from any other movement that you have today out there. We are all victims of the patriarchy. Isabel, I think this is a good a good time for us to move to questions. I've, there's hundreds of, of questions coming in from our from our audience around the world. I'll start with one that is from a, a British member of our audience, Suzanne. She's talking about this case in the UK that you and I spoke about just before we came on onto the call of the murder of Sarah Everard, who, who was abducted mm -hmm. from the street in the dark recently here in the UK. Um, many women have wanted to take part in a vigil tomorrow night. They've had to go to the High Court 
to ask for permission for that because it breaches lockdown rules. Suzanne asks, it's a terrible event uh, and she hopes that it'll be a turning point in reclaiming the streets for women. How do you think women can change men's attitudes to preying on women? The whole system needs to change. We are mourning this woman today in the UK, while in Mexico, every day they kill 100 women. Femicide is rampant and it's not even punished. It's not even reported. Honor killings in Pakistan where they kill a a young woman because in any way, in some way she has disrespected the father or the brother or the husband doesn't even go reported. So we have more here. We have achieved a lot. We have to fight for our sisters in the rest of the world. And again, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but we have to be aware that this is a war against women. So we have to be together in this. And we have to change the laws and punish the predators. By the way, they are always male, always. So when we talk against violence against women, let's be very clear. It's violence of males against women. A different question here from Sandra, who um, I believe is Spanish, but has written, has written her question in English, says, what are your thoughts on the connection between language and gender equality, particularly in languages like Spanish, where you have linguistic differences between, of course, the masculine and the feminine words? How important are these linguistic issues in the fight for equality? I live with words. My only raw material is the written word. So I know how important language is. Language determines the narrative, the discourse. So the way we tell reality is the way we perceive it. There is a reason why language has been challenged today. And in Romance languages and and Balkan languages, it's almost impossible to have a gender-neutral language because everything has gender, adjectives and nouns. So, of course, you have pronouns for in masculine and feminine. It's very difficult to change the language. It's much easier in English. But my three grandchildren say of themselves that they are non-binary. And the three of them have chosen not to use gender pronouns, which makes it very difficult for me because English is my second language. And for me to, for example, use a plural pronoun and conjugate the verb in singular It's almost impossible. I have to really, really think. But I do understand from where they come, and I try to respect it. So there will be changes in language. Depends on the language and depends how important it is for the young generation. For my generation, none of my friends understands this thing, and they are all opposed to it. I am not. We have a a male point of view uh, here. Um, There's two questions from the same person. Um, One is saying that the patriarchy, he says, the patriarchy has surely largely disappeared in Western Europe and will continue to disappear. You talk as though no progress has been made with these issues to date, but it is surely indisputable that huge progress has been made in many countries around the world. Is not the best way forward to celebrate that as a positive basis for further progress rather than sounding relentlessly angry and threatening. Now we talked about anger and threatening. So I guess this is our a chance for to talk directly to a man who perhaps feels threatened. Yeah, I think that a lot of progress has, has been made in the West, but the world is not the West. There is much a much larger world. And it also in the West depends on how educated people are and their their economic resources, 
there's a class issue also. All these things are part of the narrative as well. I think that we do celebrate the changes and we want to extend them to the rest of the world. And of course, young people, I don't know how old this uh, person is, this man is, but it depends also on your generation. If you are a young man, of course you feel that the patriarchy uh, had relented in many issues, in many ways, and we have to celebrate it. But if you are an older man, you probably feel threatened. We have a, a woman here, she's anonymous, and she says, what is one act a woman can take who has stayed at home with kids and taken care of their husband and extended family? What one act can this woman take to reclaim her life for herself? Right now, unfortunately, there is not much. But as the, you will be able to get out, be connected to other women. The, what, has, what makes us so vulnerable is isolation. A woman alone is really vulnerable. Women together are invincible. Get together. Serena asks, uh, she says she sometimes finds that women and men communicate differently and it's difficult to communicate between the two genders. Uh, Isabel, what is your opinion on this topic? Do you have any tips to improve communication? Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, going back to my friend Arlie, I would say just ask questions. Why do you think that? How do you feel? But not in, a, not in an, really, you want to hear you, you want to really hear and understand. It's not just a rhetorical question. Uh, that, that, I think, helps. Uh, you know, I've been locked in this house for a year with a husband that I didn't know, I, I didn't know him very well before. Uh, I just met him and, and we got married. I mean, it was an impulse. And, and now I am in this extended honeymoon, locked in, in this small house, and I am discovering how difficult communication can be if you don't want to listen. And, and try to put, I try to put myself in, her, in his shoes. For example, uh, he's much more cautious than I am with the virus. And so I feel that he lives like a 90-year-old because he's afraid of the virus. And I'm not willing to sacrifice the last years of my life living like a hermit. So uh, we, we clash on this. And then... I understood from where it comes. This is a man who has always followed orders, who has had a formal, structured life. He was in the military. He married the woman that he adored, was married for 48 years. He has never had to look for a job. He always had a good job. He, he works in something that, that requires to be really meticulous. So, of course, he, he's a very different person from me. I have to understand from where he comes from in order to understand how he acts. And on his side, he has to understand that I come from a very unstable life, that my life has been about ups and downs and about leaving everything behind many times. So I'm a risk taker and he's not. To try to understand from where men come, they, they are, it's not their fault that they think the way they think. It has been instilled in them since they were born, even before they were born. I have another question here from an anonymous um, uh, attendee. She asks, how do you carry Paula, your daughter, with you uh, without it shifting your attention from the rest of the things that you need to do that are on your mind? You know, the death of my daughter really broke my heart. It happened when I turned 50 and it was the end of my youth and the end of the first part of my life. I thought I wouldn't have a life after that, but I do have a life. 
And I carry my, my daughter like under the skin. It's a very soft sadness that I like in a way because it makes me go deeper into things. It, it makes me more reflective. I think I matured after Paula's death. And um, because I wrote a book called Paula that many people have read, I get letters constantly from people who feel touched by the spirit of my daughter. And I have a foundation that I created to honor her. And the job that we do in the foundation is so rewarding. It keeps her alive for me. Katie asks, have you always been spiritual in nature? It seems to run through most of your novels. I'm not particularly spiritual. I am aware of the mystery of life. And I believe that that nothing is wasted in nature. Things change, evolve, transcend. I am not just this body and this mind. There is something more there that I was very much aware when Paula died. And when my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters was born and I took her out of her mother and cut the umbilical cord. I, I felt that that was such a sacred, incredibly beautiful and mysterious moment when she came to the world. And as the death of my daughter was when she left the world. So I feel that this weird connection between birth and death and the beyond and this world. And I live in, 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 that, in that mystery that permeates my life my beliefs in a certain way, and my writing. But it's not that I am a spiritual practitioner or I don't belong to any religion or any any cult of any kind. Now, I know you have to leave uh, exactly on time because you've got a uh, another interview lined up, but I have one more question uh, for you. I know that since 8th of January, 1982, when you started writing that your first novel, House of Spirits, you've always begun a new book on that same date every year. And I wonder whether you have or did start a new piece of work this year on January the 8th. On January 8th, last year, because of the pandemic, I was able to start two books. This one, The, the Soul of a Woman, that I finished in May, I think. And then a, a novel that I finished in December that will be published next year. And this year, on January 8th, I started another novel, which I had to inter- I had to interrupt the writing because I have been doing a virtual book tour all over the world, really, for this book. But it will be over today, after my last interview today. And then next week, I hope to be back writing. Well, we are certainly very glad that you've taken the time to do that book tour, even if it's interrupted your writing, because it's given us the chance uh, to hear the wonderful wisdom of Isabel Allende. Thank you so much uh, for giving us your time this evening. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Isabel Allende and was presented by Bell Donati. The producers were Esme Bright and myself, and the editor was John Doughty. If you've enjoyed it, please do all the things that podcasters everywhere love to encourage you to do. Rate us, review us, send your friends a link to the episode, tweet about us and at us, and follow us in all of your social feeds. Best of all, you can visit us at howtoacademy.com and find out more about the live stream events we run pretty much every night of the week. Stay safe and thanks for listening.